This is day 220 of our daily Bible reading. We'll be completing the book of Galatians today, chapters 2 through 6. Lord Jesus, thank you for this day. Thank you for helping us to remember that you died for our sins. You lived a perfect life in perfect righteousness so that we could be righteous too. Thank you for bridging that gap, that chasm that is between us and you. Lord, we don't deserve it, but you honor us so much with it. You've given us a purpose. You've given us a desire for you. And may it not be put to waste, that it may glorify your name. Please humble our hearts today as we observe the crucifixion on Good Friday, that we would have a humbled heart in your sight, and that we would do all things for your glory. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Then after an interval of fourteen years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus also with me. It was because of a revelation that I went up, and I submitted to them the gospel which I preached among the Gentiles. But I did so in private to those who were of reputation, for fear that I might be running, or had run, in vain. But not even Titus, who was with me, though he was a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. But it was because of the false brethren secretly brought in, who had sneaked in to spy out our liberty which we had in Christ Jesus, in order to bring us into bondage. But we did not yield in subjection to them for even an hour, so that the truth of the gospel would remain with you. But from those who were of high reputation, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, well, those who were of reputation contributed nothing to me. But on the contrary, seeing that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been to the circumcised, for he who effectually worked for Peter in his apostleship, to the circumcised, effectually worked for me also to the Gentiles. And recognizing the grace that had been given to me, James and Cephas and John, who were reputed to be pillars, gave to me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, so that we might go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They only asked us to remember the poor the very thing I also was eager to do. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined in with his hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that they were not straightforward about the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas in the presence of all, If you, being a Jew, live like the Gentiles and not like the Jews, how is it that you compel the Gentiles to live like Jews? We are Jews by nature and not sinners from among the Gentiles. Nevertheless, 
knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Christ Jesus, so that we may be justified by faith in Christ, and not by the works of the law. Since by the works of the law no flesh will be justified. But if, while seeking to be justified in Christ, we ourselves have also been found sinners, is Christ then a minister to sin? May it never be. For if I rebuild what I have once destroyed, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness comes through the law, then Christ died needlessly. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law, or by hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So then, Those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. For as many as are the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Brethren, I speak in terms of human relations, even though it is only a man's covenant. Yet, when it has been ratified, no one sets it aside or adds conditions to it. Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, as referring to many, 
but rather to one, and to your seed, that is, Christ. What I am saying is this, the law which came 430 years later does not invalidate a covenant previously ratified by God, so as to nullify the promise. For if the inheritance is based on law, it is no longer based on a promise, but God has granted it to Abraham by means of a promise. Why the law, then? It was added because of transgressions, having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for only one party, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which was able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. But before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. For you are all sons of God through faith in Jesus Christ. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourself with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free man, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is owner of everything but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by the Father. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, so that he might redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which, by nature, are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, or rather, to be known by God, how is it that you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things, to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you 
that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. I beg of you, brethren, become as I am, for I also have become as you are. You have done me no wrong, but you know that it was because of a bodily illness that I preached the gospel to you the first time. And that which was a trial to you in my bodily condition, you did not despise or loathe, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus himself. Where then is that sense of blessing you had? For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked out your eyes and given them to me. So have I become your enemy by telling you the truth? They eagerly seek you, not commendably, but they wish to shut you out so that you will seek them. But it is good always to be eagerly sought in a commendable manner, but not only when I am present with you. My children, with whom I am again in labor until Christ is formed in you, but I could wish to be present with you now and to change my tone, for I am perplexed about you. Tell me, you who want to be under law, do you not listen to the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons, one by the bondwoman and one by the free woman. But the son by the bondwoman was born according to the flesh, and the son by the free woman through the promise. This is allegorically speaking, for these women are two covenants, one proceeding from Mount Sinai, bearing children who are to be slaves. She is Hagar. Now this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free. She is our mother. For it is written, Rejoice, barren woman who does not bear. Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor. For more numerous are the children of the desolate than of the one who has a husband. And you, brethren, like Isaac, are children of promise. But as at that time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit. So it is now also. But what does the Scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be an heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of a bondwoman, but of the free woman. It was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm, and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Behold, I, Paul, say to you that if you receive circumcision, Christ will be of no benefit to you. And I testify again to every man who receives circumcision that he is under obligation to keep the whole law. You have been severed from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, 
are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything but faith working through love. You are running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough. I have confidence in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is. But I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? Then the stumbling block of the cross has been abolished. I wish that those who are troubling you would even mutilate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brethren. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word, in the statement, You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, take care that you are not consumed by one another. But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit and the spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmities, strife, Jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envying, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, of which I forewarn you, just as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. Now those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Let us not become boastful, challenging one another, envying one another. Brethren, even if anyone is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness, each one looking to yourself, so that you too will not be tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and thereby fulfill the law of Christ. For if anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. But each one must examine his own work, and then he will have reason for boasting in regard to himself alone, and not in regard to another. 
for each one will bear his own load. The one who is taught the word is to share all good things with the one who teaches him. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Let us not lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap if we do not grow weary. So then, while we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, and especially to those who are of the household of the faith. See with what large letters I am writing to you with my own hand. Those who desire to make a good showing in the flesh try to compel you to be circumcised, simply so that they will not be persecuted for the cross of Christ. For those who are circumcised do not even keep the law themselves, but they desire to have you circumcised, so that they may boast in their flesh. But may it never be that I would boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. For neither is circumcision anything, nor uncircumcision, but a new creation. And those who will walk by this rule, peace and mercy be upon them, and upon the Israel of God. From now on, let no one cause trouble for me, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brethren. Amen. I don't know about you all, but there were some hard-hitting convictions today. Beginning in chapter 2, he is continuing to show his apostolic authority because there are still people saying that he was not legitimate. So the first thing he does in chapter 2 is explain that he has been approved by the church in Jerusalem. Why does that matter? Because that's where the first church started. Therefore, the greatest leaders of the Christian movement were in Jerusalem. And if you are accepted there, you'll be accepted anywhere. And so he talks about how he met with Peter and James and John, and those are the ones that were approving of him, and he had fellowship with them. But then he has a very interesting situation that he tells us about. There was a time where Peter, or Cephas as you see here, was being a hypocrite. He wasn't teaching something incorrect, but he at the same time was not practicing what he preached. So it shows us that when the Jews came by, he changed his behavior. And instead of teaching the gospel of peace consistently, he withdrew from eating with Gentiles when Jews were around. And so Paul called him out on it and he corrected him in his face. He rebuked one of the original eleven disciples. Who does Paul think he is? 
This is a very important scripture that completely throws out anything related to the Pope in the Catholic Church. Why? What does every Pope claim they get their authority from? The apostolic authority of Peter. And they claim that he is infallible. He does not make mistakes. He obviously made one right here, enough to where Paul had to correct him. So how is it possible that apostolic authority means anything? It doesn't. Not only that, but the Pope claims to be the vicar of Christ, which means that they are Christ on earth, and that is the deepest of heresies. So the whole point of what I'm trying to say is two things. One is, Peter was not perfect, even though he was one of the original apostles. He did not do everything correctly, because he's still a man, right? But secondly is, it's an example for us to follow. If we know of somebody in our midst at church or a spiritual brother that we know outside of church, and we know that they're sinning or that they are being hypocritical and damaging their witness, the best thing to do is to approach them about it in a spirit of love and patience, right? But we also need to be firm. We not not to be compromising with the word of God or letting it go. It needs to be addressed. Hopefully they won't get offended by it. And usually when people get offended, it's because they know they're doing something wrong and they don't want to change their habits. So let's not be one of those people, okay? Then Paul, at the second half of chapter 2, links the issue with Peter to the issue that we would have between the law and faith. We should not be justified by the works of the law because you're going to see later that James says this in his letter, that if you fail to do one thing in the law, you're guilty of the whole law. You have to be absolutely morally perfect your entire life in order to keep the whole law. But you will fail because you're a fallible human, right? So we cannot be justified by the law. The law was more for awareness of sin. But we have justification through faith in Jesus Christ. He justifies us. He is the one that qualifies us for eternal life. So it has nothing to do with the law. The law helped us see the path to God, but we are no longer held to its standards anymore. We are free from it. Why? Because verse 20, just like Paul, we have been crucified with Christ. And it is no longer us who lives, but Christ lives through us. In the life which we now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Or at least that's what it should be, if you are not resisting him. But only you know that. It should be evident in your life as well, but only you and God know your true relationship, your struggles, your internal strife. And God will get through to you eventually, but you need to let him in. Make it easy on yourself. In chapter 3, Paul describes how we are justified by faith by using Abraham once again as a reference point. Abraham lived 
well before the law was even created. And yet God credited him righteousness because he believed him. That is faith. And he believed everything that God said he would do. And that is credited to him as righteousness. The law served its purpose. We are aware of sin, and we are aware that we cannot keep the law. So therefore, we need a Savior. And so it points to Jesus Christ. That's why we are in the situation we're in. But not only that, but he describes how Christ became a curse for us by hanging on a tree and taking all of our sins. So he became a curse, and then he died with that curse on him. Therefore, the curse died in us. Those who belong to Christ, we are not under the curse of death. We will physically die, yes, most likely, but we will live forever, and we are not bound to this law any further. Praise be to God for that. In chapter 4, Paul draws the parallel again that we were slaves of the world before Christ. And now that Christ has saved us, we are enslaved to him. And it mentions in verse 4 that when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son. It's referring to the singular point in time when Christ would be born as prophesied. And that happened for us a little over 2,000 years ago. So it was always in the plan for this to happen, and that was the appointed time for all this to take place. And God brought him into the world under the law, because he was a man, right? He was divine, but he was also human. And that understanding of him being completely God and completely man is still mind-boggling to understand. The incarnation is extremely mysterious, but that is what the Bible teaches. We have to listen to it. He was raised under the law of Moses, and he obeyed the entire law of Moses throughout his earthly life. And that allows us to be righteous in the sight of God through double imputation. He imputed his righteousness on us, and he imputed salvation upon us. So when we are redeemed by God, we are adopted into his family. We are like little kids right now, where our father is still alive, we're too young to be accountable for ourselves, and there will be a time that God will appoint where everything that is coming to us, our inheritance, will be made manifest. And for us, it's going to be after we die and we go to heaven. But there's that guarantee, there's that promise that we are not just simple slaves, where we have no will of our own, there's no value in us but being property. But God puts extreme value on us, to the point where he puts the Spirit in us as a pledge, and the Spirit comes to us in our hearts crying, Abba, Father, that affectionate cry for a daddy. We are not slaves in that sense. We are children of God. The world in general is not God's children because you have to believe in Christ Jesus to be a child of God. You are a creation of God, but you are not always the child of God. Only those that have been saved by grace are that. And those people are heirs in sonship. How beautiful that is. 
And this was a convicting moment for me. In verse 8, before we were saved, we were enslaved to things that were not God. They were not gods at all. They have no power of their own, but yet either the world places value on them or we placed value on them and led ourselves astray. But now that we're saved, how can we go back to that old way? It's like with me and my constant struggle with video games. That desire is always there, like an alcoholic needing a drink. It, that, it is that strong. I hope you understand that the way I talk to you guys on here, I'm speaking to myself too, because I am not beyond making mistakes. I'm learning here with you. I have not achieved anything greater than you. I am learning just the same. And I make plenty of errors and sin all the time. But even with that, God is reminding us here that if you are out of the world, you are no longer a part of it, why do you still want it? Why do you still cling to the things that have no value or they cause you to stray away from him? Why do you hold on to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? Why, in my case, would I want to go back to video games as my master, knowing and have tasted the goodness of God? That is that constant battle that we have between the spirit and the flesh, that war that's going on within us. And they're always fighting for dominance. Which one is going to be king of the hill for a while? Is it going to be the flesh or is it going to be the spirit? He gives us something that will help us. We'll get there naturally, but let me jump ahead briefly to chapter 5, verse 16. But I say, walk by the spirit and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. There it is. And this is speaking to me too. If I want to steer clear of video games and I don't want to have that addiction haunting me all the time, for one, I don't give Satan a foothold. But secondly is, if I walk by the Spirit, that carnal desire will dissipate. Isn't that similar to what Jesus said to Paul in 2 Corinthians? How he said, that he had a thorn in his flesh and he prayed for it to go away. And Jesus said that his grace was sufficient and that his power is perfected in weakness. Maybe this is my thorn in the flesh and God's grace is sufficient for me. So why is there any argument at this point? Why are we still talking about it if it is really that simple? Well, we still have our will, don't we? We still have the flesh that wars against this idea. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak sometimes. So we need to be strong. That's why it's always good to have an accountability partner. It's always good to continue in prayer daily because we will start slipping often. We will lose ground and we will regress if we don't have somebody holding us up. That's why seek some friendships, seek a mentor, seek somebody to help you be accountable to yourself. 
Because if you leave yourself to be accountable to yourself, you will compromise with yourself. You will downplay the seriousness of your issues, as I have. But this is the challenge that we all have to face. We all have issues in our lives where we struggle to be obedient to God because these things in the world are so enticing. But it says clearly that the Spirit is superior in every way, and if we walk by the Spirit, then we will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The second half of chapter 4 is how he's talking about the promise between Isaac and Ishmael. They were both Abraham's sons, but one was the son of a bondwoman, which was Hagar, and the other was the son of a free woman, Sarah. It's not the individuals themselves that are the issue here. What he's illustrating here is the fact that the promises of God were through Sarah, and therefore through Isaac. It is a greater promise than that which was made to Hagar. And so that's why we belong to the spirit of the free woman than we do to the slave woman. In chapter 5, Paul refers to Christian liberty once again. The Corinthians had trouble with this too, and now we're here with the Galatians struggling with it too. Circumcision means absolutely nothing. It is all faith-based. Everything we do should be by faith, not out of compulsion, not out of ritual, not out of tradition, but out of faith. That is the trick. And Paul makes it very simple for how we are to interact with each other. If you want to fulfill the whole law, you just do it by doing one thing. Love your neighbor as yourself, and you'll complete the law. Can we do that? No, but that is certainly the effort we should be making. Then right after that portion we talked about by walking by the Spirit, he gives two very stark contrasts here. First thing he does is he talks about the deeds of the flesh and what they look like. And all these things are very negative things. But then he shows us what the fruit of the Spirit is. And these are godly attributes that the Holy Spirit gives us when we are instilled with salvation. But this is also a telltale sign of how legitimate you are and how healthy your spiritual life is. So these nine qualities are proof that you depend on the Holy Spirit. So if you don't see these things in your average Christian, they're not depending on the Lord, and they're either divided or they're not one of us. This is not a means to judge people, because it is not our place to judge. I don't know the situation of your salvation. There are some people that look like they're saved, but they're not. And there are some people that don't always act like they're saved, but they are. So it is not our place to judge. But if we do have issues, we do need to address them. There is a right way to do this, and there's a wrong way to do it. But here is the goal. This is what you should be described as if you are a true believer in Christ. These are the evidences of your faith. These won't save you, but these are proofs of the things that you're doing. And lastly, in chapter 6, Paul goes through how to handle a spiritual brother who is sinning. 
There is a right way to do it, and it's to be done with gentleness, because you're not trying to discourage them or cause them to abandon their faith, but we're trying to get them to be reconciled to God as well as to repent. That's the whole purpose. So we need to do it gently and supportively. Address the issue, yes, but we're not saying do this or you're not one of us or you're dead to me or you're a loser. You, you don't want to say those kinds of things because that's not helpful at all. Go with a spirit of gentleness and support. That's where they need the help. Here's another powerful piece of scripture here in verse 7. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever a man sows, this he shall also reap. There are so many people in the world that are so convinced that they're godly. In my building, there are 40 other people besides me. I'm the only saved person in my building. Everyone else is either Catholic or agnostic in some way. Now, I'm not saying that you can't get saved if you're a Catholic, but they're at a disadvantage because the doctrines that their church teaches is leading them astray. I have no issues with Catholic people. I have issues with the Catholic doctrine. That is where the problem is. And so it is so sad to see people think that because they are doing their confession, they're going to statues of Jesus and praying to him, which is idolatry, they're taking part of the Eucharist, being sprinkled as a baby and for baptism, you know, doing all these indulgences and so on and so forth, that this is going to save you, and it's not. And yet they lord it around saying, yeah, look, I'm better than everybody else. I'm a good Catholic. No, you're not. There's no such thing as a good Catholic. You're either obedient to Jesus Christ or you're not. And if you think you're anything, then you're probably not anything. Where he said that if anybody thinks that there's something, then they need to be humbled. It's actually in verse 3 of this chapter. For if anyone thinks that he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We are not saved by our merits. And that is a very Catholic way of thinking, unfortunately. We are not saved by our merits. We are saved by grace, by the unmerited favor of God. We should be grateful for that grace. The natural byproduct of that grace in your life should be good works and evidences of your faith through the fruit of the Spirit. But you did nothing to contribute to your salvation. And so we need to remember that. But instead, we just need to continue sanctifying our hearts by doing what is right and what is honest and what pleases God. Last thing that Paul says before he says his farewells is that the cross of Jesus Christ is the only thing that he boasts about. And that should be our boasting as well. We boast in the cross. What better day to do that than on Good Friday? Boast in the cross. Know that God has accomplished great things for you and in you and through you and that many more things are coming. But more than that, that the cross may be glorified in the hearts of men across the world. 
The cross is not something we should be worshiping. The cross is not something that we should exalt. It is God who needs the exaltation, but we do point to the cross to show where we need to go. We need to go onto that cross, and we need to be crucified with Christ. And just like him, we don't wear crucifixes in the Baptist church. In the Protestant church, we don't have Jesus on our cross because he's not on the cross anymore. He came off that cross, and he rose from the grave, and he is alive today at the right hand of the Father. There is no point in worshiping a crucifix because it has no power in itself, and my Christ is not on that cross anymore. It has already been completed. It is finished. Boast in the cross to show where we need repentance, where we need to find Jesus Christ as our hope and our salvation. That's it. That's as deep as it goes. And that ends the book of Galatians. And that ends our reading for today as well. Thank you for listening. I'm Ryan, and we'll see you next time. Take care, and God bless you.